Today we're going to begin with Conversations with Remarkable Minds. Frances Moore LePay. She is the author, of course, of the best-selling book from the 1970s, Diet for a Small Planet, which influenced millions of people about the cause of hunger and the food choices we make. Since then, she's become one of the nation's leading social activists, and, and she fights for resources and understanding new democratic social movements. Today, we're going to talk with her about the national and global democracy and the state of the nation and planet, powerlessness and fear, and how to find new hope. She is also the author of Getting a Grip, with the subtitle, Clarity, Creativity, and Courage in a World Gone Mad. Nice to have you with us today. Thank you, Gary. Good to talk to you again. (laughs) Yes. The subtitle of your most recent book is Clarity and Creativity and Courage in a World Gone Mad. Part of this madness is the effects it has had on citizens. Now, you outline a spiral of powerlessness instead of hope, which you observe underlying much of the American population. I'm going to ask you in a moment to go through that process because I I want us to see the difference between choosing to turn all of the chairs on the deck of the Titanic in the opposite direction. So that's what we're currently doing, and we actually have cheerleaders helping us do that. People don't want us to see the, the uh, nature of our problems, including today. Oil hitting $100 a barrel and estimated to go to 120 and yet we're told that should be something we have to accept not realizing the only reason it went to $80, $90, $100 or higher is because hedge fund leaders and others dealing in exotic uh, types of economics are betting and gambling on it to their profit. And by the way, for every quarter that that goes up, it brings an additional $100 million out of the American public's pocket each day. So the amount of money that these speculators are making on forcing the price of oil up, which has nothing to do with how much it's being produced or how much we're using. Those are staying where they're constant. It's just purely greed. And yet we actually allow it. We encourage it. Members of Congress say nothing about it. Have you heard a single presidential candidate, including Obama or Hillary, these other you know, so-called great Democrats, saying a word about how the American public is being used by people that contribute to their campaigns as if this is normal. So that's the first area I want you to get into. Then secondly, citizens can't make informed decisions and take appropriate actions to change the forces which influence their lives if they do not have the correct information. I'll just give you one example. The Bush administration continues to say that the economy is strong and uh, the U.S. is close to $500 billion trade export, a third of which is to Europe. However, increasingly the Europeans are banning our products because our technologies and cosmetics and food items and consumer items do not meet their environmental standards. Even the American corporate lobby effort is moving steadily towards Belgium, the seat of the European Union, and they're losing their influence. And China's adopted European environmental standards banning toxic substances which are convincingly proven to be carcinogenic and injure the endocrine system. In turn, as we've seen with the, the callbacks in China goods, the Chinese seem to be repeating what American industry did when many of our products that were proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, like DDT, to be harmful. We banned them in the United States, but immediately sent them off to China. 
and hence 500,000 people in the world were poisoned by pesticides, most of which came from the United States. And what kind of ethic does it say that we're willing to ban something because it's not good enough for our health, but we have no problem selling the same product without any warnings to poor and uneducated people in third world countries so they can use the product and get sick and die in American Wall Street and our investors can make money from it. Those are the two two issues, and then we'll get into some serious topics. Francis? Yes. You ready to go? I'm ready. All right. It's over to you now. Well, I'm so appreciative of the powerful information that you just shared, such perfect examples, perfectly horrible examples of what I call thin democracy, which is actually a kind of charitable term for it. Uh, but this is the result of a system that we've come to believe um, is democracy, but it actually is so dis- disempowering of regular citizens that it works against our interest. Well, let's go through that in detail. Give us, if you could take on either of the two lines I just started, the idea that in the United States, we have no problem manufacturing something only when outside people like yourself or scientists or others say something is harmful after a long litigious process like tobacco or DDT or aldrin or heptachlor or Agent Orange. Only then does the government and special interest groups decide, yes, okay, now we must ban it, but never proactively. Can you name me when the United States government or any of its agencies or industries actually went to went ahead of the, the the efforts of activists and said, yes, this is bad, let's ban something. Yes. And do you think, or don't you think, as I do, I'm curious to know that this actually what you're describing, such great examples, is a reflection, it's a symptom of something deeper that is the very functioning, the, the assumptions we have about what is democracy. And we've allowed... I'm sure you're familiar with Greg Palace's great title, uh, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, that we've resigned ourselves to a system of government in which concentrated wealth, corporate power, has outweighs outweighs citizen power. There are now 61 lobbyists in Washington for each person that you and I have elected to represent us there. So citizens in America are outnumbered 61 to 1 in our own decision-making process. And so for me, what you're describing flows directly from that um, untoward and that infusion, or, or shall we say, infection of our political system by the power of concentrated wealth. What do you see the consequences being if we do not do something to change that? Well, precisely the undermining of our own health, as we now, as you point out, as we know, uh, when, when we talk about the, the chemicals in our cosmetics that, as you say, are banned in Europe, or you talk about uh, pesticides like atrazine that was you know, used here, used here, used here, while, of course, we know uh, that it is harmful. So um, I, I think that it is, one, it is, yes, the undermining of our own health, But it is also, of course, as we see today, the undermining of our basic constitutional protections, uh, as we see with the pull, you know, whether it is uh, the uh, um, right to a fair 
trial, whether it is the right to protection against warrantless wiretapping, that concentrated power throughout history, humanity has certainly learned the lesson that concentrated power is anathema to our thriving, our well-being, and to the uh, health of our planetary home. So my, my thesis in getting a grip is that we can now. Getting a grip to me means looking at root causes, because otherwise we are, as I say, you know, engaging in random acts of sanity, which ultimately are not very satisfying. So we need to look at root causes, and certainly one of them is what is it about our thought system that allows us to turn over our fate to an ever more concentrating decision-making power structure. So that cycle of powerlessness that you referred to in my book, that begins uh, to, in, at least to explain it from where I am now, uh, as, as I've looked at this for now for several decades. Good. Okay, now let's go into the specifics. I'm going to throw several issues in your direction. Please uh, deal with them how you wish, all right? Mm-hmm. With, a little, uh, with just a little um, caveat. When you mention that we have a disproportionate amount of wealth, and wealth by itself in our society represents power because we look towards people who are perceived as successful, whether they're celebrities or wealthy business people, as being able to tell us what we need to do, no matter what it is. We don't want to go buy a car. We want Tiger Woods to tell us which car to buy. We don't want to buy a hamburger. We want or a hot dog, we want uh, Michael Jordan in his commercial for the you know hot dog to tell us this is the hot dog you should buy. What that has to do with basketball for him or golf or Tiger Woods is really of secondary significance. Uh, it's just that they're a celebrity, and gee whiz, shouldn't they know more than the rest of us? So much of the time, we start off in our journeys by trying to find what's missing from our lives, And most of what we do in our journey is to distract and diminish the present moment and hence not willing to uh, learn a lesson unless we first have lost. The people out in California, they're not going to say, why am I living in a state that is not sustainable, that doesn't have water, that has too much dry uh, foliage and and, uh, that's on an earthquake zone? Uh, Why don't I move to a place that doesn't have any of the above? Well, no, they'll have to wait for loss then and only then will they appreciate that maybe they should have made a decision earlier. So let's begin by taking us where our society only allows for limited monotheistic beliefs, only one truth. Hence, everything else, including you, me, and everyone else who has a different point of view, irrespective of whether or not our view and examples of our view can be shown to be correct, must by its very nature be dismissed, no matter what the issue is, Hence, everything else is considered not true, and so few people ever change. That's where I'd like for you to begin sharing the insights from your book with us, please. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, what you're describing begins with a premise that we absorb in our, our culture. I think of it as an invisible ether that we begin to breathe as soon as we're born in this culture, and that now spreading throughout the world is the idea that there's not enough. I call it the premise of lack, lack of good, lack of goodness. There's not enough of anything in the world that we may need, whether it be food or parking places um, and everything in between. So there's not enough lack and there's not enough goodness in us. So not enough good, not enough goodness. There's 
human nature is lacking, that we are lacking what it takes to create a world that, you know, <laughs> that our common sense and our, our, our sensibilities would lead us toward. No, 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 we, we are trapped by our own lack. We are simply selfish, competitive materialists. That's what our culture tells us. That's, well, at least that's all we can count on. That's what our culture tells us, that when it boils down to it, that's what we can count on. From there, from that presumption of lack, we learn then that the only choice because of our flawed nature is to turn over our fate, to turn over our fate hopefully to some impersonal, infallible law, what uh, Ronald Reagan called the magic of the market, the idea that there's some force out there that's going to sort out the outcomes because we human beings are simply too flawed. And from that, of course, it's not any kind of market as we now see. It is a, what I call a one-rule market. That is, highest return to shareholder. In other words, highest return to existing wealth, people who already have the shares, and therefore wealth inexorably concentrates until it is so tightly held as we see today one family, Walton family of Walmart, one family controls more wealth now, or as much wealth as, 40% of the entire American population. And that concentrated wealth then infects and distorts our political system. In fact, we've been warned about this by many great leaders and thinkers. Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed Congress in April of 1938. And he said to a joint session of Congress on the issue of monopoly, he said, the liberty of democracy is not safe if a people tolerate the growth of private power to the point that it is stronger than the democratic state itself. That, in its essence, is fascism. This was an American president warning us about this danger that we are now embroiled in today. Well, you actually have an unholy alliance, do you not, where you just don't have wealthy people today. Uh, in and of itself, that is not a that is not an indiscretion, nor is it a negative. It's what they do with the wealth, and are they able to help others who are less wealthy and correct imbalances that have become excessive because of pre- people's pursuit of wealth, and generally through the stripping and overusing of our resources. But it's when that wealth marries itself into the popular charisma of candidates. Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton's a good example. It was through Bill Clinton at GATT, NAFTA, and the World Trade Organization, which caused the decimation of 1.6 million American workers that caused the destruction of much of the infrastructure, at least of the previous infrastructure, the Mexican economy. I went down to Mexico. I went to the border. I went into Tijuana. I was there. I saw. I spoke. I went into the homes of poor people. I didn't see anyone from NBC News there or Fox or anyone else. And until you do the homework and go there, I go to the jungles of Brazil. I'm going into the huts in, in Port-au-Prince, into Zimbabwe. So when you're on the ground and you suddenly see these are the consequences of rich individuals who do not feel that what they have is enough, hence suffering from what you're discussing, that somehow there is a shortage. And anything that they feel short in, they feel inadequate in. So they will spend inordinate amounts of money and energy and strength and order so that they never lose sight of their real goals. And in their mind, the real goals are to survive their pain. But we never see that the real goal is pain aversion. 
the pain of loneliness, the pain of inconsequential existence, the pain that you no longer have relevance, the pain that you're no longer able to win, you're no longer competitive, you're no longer seen as significant. And yet this lacking of spirituality causes them then to marry into someone who is dynamic and charismatic and who then allows them to use the offices of that very democracy that you're referring to, FDR, and now they have a monopoly, but because the private sector has usurped the, the, uh, the, the legislative sector on all levels, Democrat and Republican, you see that in today's Wall Street Journal, the front page of the Wall Street Journal today, the number one pork-barreling politician in Congress is the Democrat from Pennsylvania, Murtha. Billions of dollars this year alone, $188 million in pork. Pork is nothing more than insinuating that money into a local economy at excessive profit so he gets reelected. What does it do for the rest of the country, our sustainability, and honoring the environment, our health? Nothing. Now, right behind him is Nancy Pelosi, and you start looking, well, gee whiz, aren't these people supposed to be protecting our interest? Who gave them this? And you see that it's the wealthy and powerful who combine the energies, and that is a negative synergy. It hides their weaknesses. It causes us to look for the illusion that everything is okay, and it's not. And I'm asking, what are we afraid of losing? And these people are afraid of being replaced. So the primary reason that we create goals is to begin a journey. But these people are afraid of everything that they cannot control. So they try to control everything. They control the media. They control business. They control the social culture. They control the ethics. And they control the government. They control the laws. So pesticide manufacturers control the laws and strip out the Delaney Amendment, the only law that ever existed to completely protect us against cancer-causing agents. They control Medicare. They control pharmaceuticals. They control 11 million children giving up each morning and have to take a class 2 drug before they go to school. You and I never did that. So add that into the equation of what you were just saying and see how it flushes itself out. Well, Gary, I agree very much with your characterization. It's, it's the way that you're weaving this together with very concrete facts about a predicament. My concern is that as I listen and I'm, my, you know, I'm saying, yes, 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 go, I, I'm with you. My concern is that as people listen and begin to understand this, they then feel that it is all tied up. It's, it's all over because the concentrated power uh, as a result of this belief system, I believe it's a result of reflecting belief system, is now so entrenched that there is no way to, to interrupt this, cycle that is continuing to concentrate power. There is no place for us. And I, 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 I'm, I'm fearful that uh, if we were to stop here, <laughs> not that we are, but I just want to underscore that the theme of my work, my whole life's work, is to allow us to understand power differently. That power is not simply something that one has as a result of official position or of wealth or of having a gun under in your hand power is relationship power is our capacity to act and that the way i've become to understand the world is that you and i each are creating our realities moment to moment and i don't mean that in any woo-woo way i mean that very practically neuroscience is telling us that as as we act others observe us inevitably and are affected by that as we observe others as we choose who to bring into our life 
uh, we in part become that other. As what we watch or who we listen to on the radio, that shapes who we become, whether we feel we have power or not, whether we do have power or not. So I just want to come to this that I, I so agree with the way you're characterizing our predicament, and I want to underscore that this exists only as long as we buy into it. Okay, only well, as long. You're you're absolutely right. I was only setting up the problem. I didn't even get to ask you yet <laughs> the solution. But you see, I'm one of those guys that when I walk in and I'm counseling patients every day, uh-huh. uh, I look at the problem, not the symptom. And what actually caused this problem? Not not an arthritis that's flared up, n- not a brain that's forgetting and in dementia. And only by being completely honest and not blinking when looking at something can we change it. So now we Absolutely. shift gears and we go to the positive side of this equation because every program I've ever done is the problem and the solution. The solution is what is empowers us. But you cannot just go to the solution if you do not highlight the problem because people won't realize how attached to the problem they are. So it's just to make them aware. Now I'm going to give you three areas to get into the solution, okay? Now for the good news. I believe that our problem leads us to a solution. The problem is that we manifest unnecessarily complex lifestyles. I want you to talk about the solution honoring authentic life and not a complex life. Secondly, I believe that we go outside of ourselves for meaning, and hence our culture actually exploits us. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. I'm Paris Hilton. Look at me. I'm Bill Wright. Look at me. I'm the exaggerationist. I'm the exhibitionist. I'm the guy with the bling and the gold. I'm the woman with the sexy new you know, boob jobs and all this. So we start looking for meaning. Reality shows. I won't watch a reality show. I have not watched a reality show. I find them vulgar. I find them non-spiritual. That does not enhance my well-being. I'm not going to watch it. And yet we go for our meaning there. So tell us about where we find true meaning. That's the solution. Thirdly, how does institutional reality affect our personal reality? Many doctors. I j- we're filming today in Chicago. And I'm filming a group of physicians who are speaking out on the issue of vaccination. I have a new uh, documentary we're premiering in just about 10 days called Vaccine Nation. And in this, I'm showing how do we get to where everyone assumes that vaccines are safe and effective. Well, because even the pediatricians who I interviewed this morning are saying, well, no one questions it. And one man said, were you aware that Gandhi was against vaccinations? Were you aware that one of the great civil rights uh, uh, fighters uh, of all times, uh, Frederick, Frederick Douglass, was against vaccination? No, we weren't aware. Well, this was a historian, a professor of history and the history of science, and talking about when he brought up the subject that we shouldn't believe automatically in vaccines because it's not true that they're safe and effective for all cases, he said that he was attacked by his own colleagues. So how often does our reality so bind itself to an institutional reality that you can't think unless you think it's a Democrat or Republican or a Green or a a corporate takeover artist or a hedge fund or, or a Protestant You're thinking through the institutional constructs. So the solution I'm throwing to you is, how do we create a personal reality? And finally, institutions can rob us of our personal authority. The only person that's ever going to listen to this program, read your book, and make a change is a person who has once again gained a sense of authority in their own life. They don't need to go in the little children's makeup 
a woman dressing up as a little girl, boy dressing up as a little boy, going over shy, hands behind them, twiddling their thumbs, says, please, Mr. Authority figure, hierarchical schmuck, do I have permission now to do something? Do I have permission to eat this, drink this, wear this, live this? Can I actually think for myself, or will that offend you? Well, I'm Peck's bad boy. I don't do anything the way I'm supposed to. Because I refuse to ever allow any institution to rob me of my authority. I will look carefully at what that authority and the responsibilities of it are in order to make the decisions that I feel are in the best interest of myself and by extension anyone else who chooses to look at them. But how quickly an institution can make you feel virtually of no significance. And that's why we only have 2,200 complementary holistic physicians out of 740,000 physicians. And look at how few people are willing to challenge the absolute wrongs because the institution has robbed them of personal authority. So my last issue with you is please take us on the journey of creating the sense of personal authority within our own lives that we are not insignificant, that it doesn't matter where we are in some artificially constructed hierarchical position of power and authority in our lives, the truth on our side can still be all that we require in order to make prudent humanistic, spiritual, and moral decisions. That's the form is yours now. Thank you. The word that first comes to mind for me because of my own journey is the word curiosity. (laughs) Because I, I believe that human beings, all of us, have an innate curiosity. Um, we, we wonder, we, 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 we wonder why. I mean, that is what it means to be, uh, be human. I, and for me, the beginning of my adult life, beginning of my journey that I love so much began when I stopped trying to please a professor and try, or actually trying to trick a professor because I grew up in the South in the 1950s and 60s believing that I was a very um, not-too-bright uh, Southern female and so when I got to college, I felt totally ill-prepared and went through school trying to trick professors into not making that discovery about who I really was. And it wasn't until I left school and realized that I had questions coming from inside me that I had to answer. And I then was terrified, terrified because I didn't feel I had that identity to which you're referring. I wasn't an expert on anything. But the great blessing is that I had questions, and I believe everyone does have questions if we can just stay still long enough and walk with that fear of uncertainty, of the unknown, and, until we can identify what are our true, our, our, genuine, our, our, our genuine questions. And that is what I believe is at the root of really my answer to all the many beautiful questions that you have posed to us, in, in, and, um, and they then, I've already mentioned fear, I just want to stay there for a minute, because ultimately all the things that you're saying, Gary, require that we develop a different relationship with fear, that we, uh, we grow up believing that to avoid feeling the sensations of fear, uh, we are safe, we are secure, as long as we aren't having those uncomfortable feelings of the heart beating and the dry mouth and the cold sweats, when actually 
fear uh, is what accompanies us often because that's the way we evolved. I think it often accompanies us when we are breaking away from the tribe, when we are listening to our own questions. Inevitably, I believe for most of us, that is going to provoke fear because we are hardwired to believe that we must stay with the tribe in order to survive. But now that the whole hyper-tribe is heading over the fall, so to speak, separating from it often is life itself. And so we have to rethink fear itself, not as a verdict, not as a judgment on us that we are in the wrong place and we're in danger, but actually those fear sensations may mean that we are walking exactly toward health and in our own truth. And so it's a remaking of fear as well as our understanding of power. Very well said. I really appreciate your insights. I'm going to give you a final thought and uh, share with us what you will on this. I see two unique opportunities ahead for everyone in the United States. I see either that we take a more classical, spiritual, a renaissance view of our problems and literally transform the world we live in, but first transform our lives. Surrender fear that you mentioned, expand into consciousness, use our anger, which is a healthy emotion, in a very positive and constructive way, or we will end up going through a cultural revolution, not a violent revolution, a cultural revolution, where we will simply become so apathetic that we will no longer see the possibility of resolving our conflict. We'll look at ourselves as such captives to the power base, and the power base will not change. They will not be a part of this renaissance because the very need that they have to be a Walton, and collectively the five Waltons control over $100 billion. And not once have I heard the Waltons talk about how many American little town uh, stores were closed because of their mega malls coming in and how many jobs they're putting uh, out of work and quality products that once were here because of cheap products coming in from Europe. So the lack of consciousness and how we accumulate wealth, especially the hedge fund ma- makers uh, who are now manipulating the oil market and driving prices up without any thought of what this is doing to the average person. They just know that they, the home they have up in Walton, Connecticut is not big enough. The community's not white enough. It's not conservative enough. They have to prove. So their whole life is one of proving. They're not a part of this. They could be. They choose not to be. Bill Gates is at the top of my list of one of the most uninformed, unspiritual people on the planet. And I'm one of the only people who will stand up, and I've invited him on the program respectfully to ask what he's done with his money in Africa. But that's the problem. They throw money at a problem as if somehow reward me, respect me, love me for how I I throw money at a problem, but no one says, well, hold on, what's the consequences? We don't stop long enough in our society to look at the consequences of our actions, only wanting to be rewarded for our effort. But in the revolution, the cultural revolution, we will dumb down even more, if that's possible. We will become apathetic, more suicides, more teens being diagnosed with more conditions, more people in prisons, more privatization of more public projects, and apathy. So history shows that at any time power and wealth get as consolidated in one position of empire, the population simply abandons its civil virtue. It becomes uh, bordering on apathetic. Now, the divide is here. 
It's, it's not the same divide we saw in the 60s with the anti-war, anti-nuclear, and, and civil rights movements, but it's approaching it. Americans right now are more apathetic than they are optimistic, and that's why we are overweight, that's why we're sick, and that's why we're still doing the wrong things. But because of you, because of all the other great visionaries and ethicists and philosophers and people who are asking us to bring reason, not reaction, into our dialogue— People are seeing that we can live through a potential that avoids revolution, use, you, uh, ushers in a new renaissance and new social awareness that don't just make money, make a new life, work with people. And what we need now is what you and others are talking about. We need the confidence and the courage to be authentic in our own lives and to stop the government, the industry, some literally poisoning us both physically, environmentally, and most importantly, ideologically. So just everything's for profit and everything else is illusion. So let's surrender illusion, surrender fear, stop allowing ourselves to be the sponge that is permeated with other people's motivations that are always manipulative and take back the right to live as we were born to be spiritual beings inhabiting a physical body. Your final thoughts, please. Well, I completely agree with this possible two scenarios. I can't predict myself. I don't predict. Um, I think that my my uh, look at it is that simply it's impossible to know what's possible, and that is our freedom to really act from our inner wisdom, which I think is is in each of us, that we know that this isn't working. Uh, this meaning the dominant uh, cultural myth is not working for us personally or for our ecological home. And so what I hope that my work, Getting a Grip, and my other works and um, my voice can contribute to is our walking with our fear of difference in order to redefine what is the good life, to redefine happiness as trusting our own capacity trusting our own common sense, uh, this is the moment. Uh, we either become depressed, uh, feeling um, absolutely despairing, as I see many Americans are. I don't believe in the idea of apathy, sort of a pathos, non-feeling. I think we either feel but stuff those feelings and become depressed, which is now a global epidemic, or we join with others, and I think this is the key. We are social creatures. And we, we need, if we want to change ourselves, to have the courage to walk with fear and to follow our hearts, then we need to surround ourselves with others who will reinforce our risk-taking. And so my one suggestion is that alone we, will, we are more apt to sink into our self-doubt and to just go along with the dominant culture that is killing us uh, in every sense of that and so bring into our lives through radio, through books, but most of all through direct face-to-face. -face. Find something that grabs your curiosity. Reach out to others who are curious about that and making it work, whether it is about healthy eating, whether it is about getting money out of politics, which is now happening on a state level, it's succeeding. Whatever it is that grabs your curiosity, join with others who will encourage you to ask questions, encourage you to walk with your fear of difference and all the fears that we hold, but just say, 
in, you know, I, for myself, when I feel that pounding heart that is my own symptom of fear, I've renamed that inner applause that's telling me that I'm doing the right thing because I'm right at my own growth edge. Good for you. Francis, it's always a pleasure and a privilege to share some thoughts with you, and I, I look forward to our next conversation. 